I'm Jacob Kinberg, and you are listening to Salty Cinema. Today on the show, I am talking to documentary filmmaker Dan Paris. Dan uh, is a friend of mine from college. He lives in St. Louis now and runs his production company, Speak Up Productions. He's made some really powerful films over the past few years. I'm always excited to see what is coming next from him. His latest is called Show Me Democracy. It's really good. We recently got on the phone to talk about that film and much, much more. We uh, get into documentary filmmaking in general and and why, uh, why Dan got into it. So here is my conversation with Dan Paris. Watch Show Me Democracy last night. Um, it was really good, dude. You did an awesome job. Um, Thanks, man. I have a lot of questions. Uh, okay. But just just like um, about how you did it more so than what it was about. Although after watching it, like I, I was like, I was just in a weird mood. Like I, I had this like sinking feeling in my stomach. I felt like, angry and sad and i didn't really know why or at what it was like a mixture of all these things of of what i was feeling just like sad and angry about my own sin and the sin and other people and just how the world is and i just came away like (laughs) just like you know come lord jesus come you know wow wow and and so and i was it also put me in this place that my wife she's talk me out of a lot of times where I I kind of get like just thinking about how selfish of a lifestyle I live, you know, and think about what other people are doing all the time that are like, you know, really committing themselves to doing something for others that I just feel is kind of is missing a lot of times from from my life. And so I'll be thinking along those lines and my wife will try to remind me of all the ways that I do do things for other people like her and our daughter and everything. But I still just feel like I don't care enough or as much as it seems like other people do like the the subjects of your documentary. Yeah. Yeah. And it per- but it personally is, I, I, I think it's hard to be impacted until something like really stirs up your, like will affect something in your daily life. You know what I mean? Right like all of them are thinking about they're seeing it right on, on, on the daily by interacting with their family members or whatever. While you and I, a lot of that isn't so personal, you know, yeah. it's a little more personal now that I live in a, a urban setting. So I'm, I'm seeing people begging, I'm crossing streets and seeing like going from nice neighborhoods to like neighborhoods that just are very underdeveloped. And mm-hmm. so that's, um, I think it has to, prick you personally to a lot of times, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like after you have to break your heart and usually what breaks your heart is something that you're personally connected to, you know? Right. So what, um, obviously you started filming this a long time ago. Um, what, how did it get started for you? 
It started when, you know, when Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, I'd, I'd been to Ferguson like once in my life. It's about 25 minutes from where I live. And, um, I went out to an event a couple of days later and it was downtown St. Louis. I saw these cameras there and I just said, you know what? This is not my story. This story is being well covered by news filmmakers flying in from around the country. And so I'm going to, you know, take a break from that. I had just gotten married like a couple months earlier. And, um, and then two months later, I, I remember I was sick in the bed. I had like a fever and I never get sick. And all of a sudden, like six gunshots went off in our neighborhood. In our neighborhood, you know, we hear gunshots occasionally, but it's not that often. And my wife's like, I think somebody just got shot or something. And so the next day we hear that a young man was shot by an off-duty police officer. And protesters come by our front door that next night yelling out of your homes into the streets, out of your homes into the streets. And there had to be like, 200 people or something just coming through our neighborhood. Mm. And so uh, my wife and I came out and we just started filming. Um, and that, that footage ended up in some of the first like five, 10 minutes of the film. But I didn't really know what the story was until I had a meeting with the scholarship foundation who run the policy program that the film's kind of based on. And I had, mm. I had received um, an interest-free loan from them to go to college. So I was like one of the people that like, their organization supports and I was meeting with them about doing a separate client project, like um, a a project completely unrelated. And the executive director said, Oh, we're also doing this policy program that you might find very interesting. And one of the people in the program is one of the lead protesters in the Ferguson movement. And so then I saw the connection of both what was happening in my heart and what I was wrestling with. I was on Twitter, looking at the news, trying to understand the the intensity of the response to Michael Brown mm-hmm. and um and and how everything that was happening in our city it was it was just so tense and and I saw a way to take what I was already filming because I'd already spent like a weekend with protesters before even knowing why I was filming the footage, like what my story would be mm. and um so I was like, well, when does this program start? She's like, in an hour, <laughs> so I ran home, got my camera. Uh, drove to the uh, to their office and started filming that first day and, and that footage. A lot of that's in the film too. And, a lot, and none of those folks knew I was going to be there. And so she kind of introduced me to them and me and I introduced, uh, I got introduced to them and they got introduced to me in that all in that one moment. So your, your wife uh, films as well? No, no. My wife, she's she, a social worker for St. Louis public schools. Uh, okay. So, so you were filming all by yourself throughout this whole. And she was just with me. Gotcha. Yeah. But throughout this whole t- um, whole time that you're following this story, you're the only only camera guy in all these places, or did you work with a team? No, no. I had um. So I have a production company, um, and I hire these guys for different client projects and so other freelancers. And so mm. I would say I shot about eighty five percent of it. Okay. Um, but there's there's a lot there's a couple trips where I didn't shoot any of it because I wasn't able to go, mm. and I would send someone out to shoot that. Like the whole legislative meeting when they're talking about undocumented yeah. uh, immigrants and all that stuff, I didn't shoot any of that. That okay. legislative meeting, somebody else shot that. But um, in some moments, it was me and another person. Like um, there's some some of the fancier shots in our city cap, our state capital. We worked me and another guy, Joey Jett, and worked as a team on that. Mm. Yeah, because I was curious. I mean, you're following so many separate uh, characters and for such a long time. Like, how did you... I mean, I can't imagine what the amount of footage that you had to 
cut with, but, um, yeah. How did, how did you, uh, get everything that you got for the film? Well, we, we ended up getting a hundred hours okay. and it, it was shot from October, 2014 till December, 2015. Okay. And so I, they they had a kind of a calendar for the program, so I would know when events were happening with the program. So they would let me know, or I would reach out and say, when's the next thing happening? And so I'd plan that into my schedule. Mm-hmm. And then I'd follow Brittany on Twitter to see what she was doing as an activist. So they're like, oh, we're, we're here, we're heading this place, or this is going to happen. And I would text her like, hey, you know, give me the inside scoop, or let me know when you're doing your next you know, event. So in the scene there, like in the film, there's that black brunch event. So she gave me the, you know, I was one of the first people there and I'm like, well, what's going on? And I got the inside scoop on stuff. She would let me know of when things were going (laughs) down. That was probably, I mean, I know you framed the movie with the, the airport thing, but I, I almost felt like the brunch was even more heightened than, than what you show from the, the airport scene. It might have to do with how you cut it. You know, a lot of times you don't get to hear the actual exchanges and you're, you're listening to the people kind of talk about what happened in those, in those scenes rather than just like letting them kind of play as hearing what people are actually saying to each other. But it seemed like a really intense, (laughs) tense thing there. It, it was very intense. I remember it was like a Sunday and she let me know. And I just called one of my friends and I said, his name is Darnell. I'm like, Hey, you want to film something with me this day? I'm not really sure what it is. <laughs> um, it ended up being a pretty intense moment. Cause we sat outside while they first kind of filled up that brunch spot. Uh-huh. And uh, just to give, I guess your listeners an idea, this is a scene where they, it's an event called black brunch where um, these activists from the movement for black lives would go to a mostly white establishment that was having like brunch. and they would do a protest right in the middle of people's brunch on like a Sunday. And so we're in a part of St. Louis where it's almost predominantly white. Um, and these, all these mostly black activists come in wearing all black and look like they're about to order, but then they just start running a protest where they did like a fake beating of two white police officers beating this African-American man. And in the middle of the scene, this older couple comes up and says, hit him again. And, uh, well, if you debate the law, this wouldn't happen. And we caught all that on camera, but then we also mm-hmm. talked to that same woman who said that outside, and um, and the the manager or one of the people connected to the to the restaurant and stuff like that. So it's a it's a scene that jumps between these different points of views in this really intense moment of a, a protest in the middle of people's brunch. Yeah, I it was um, hearing that lady's perspective and the interesting fact of her, you know, history with saying she was a part of the. Uh, you know, worked, I guess she said she like worked in the sixties with the civil rights movement. Right. Right. And like, yeah, just thinking about, there was one thing I kind of wish there was more of in the film was getting kind of the other, the other points of view. Yeah. Other points of view. I mean that, that scene in particular, I think it was just really interesting how you jumped back and forth like that. Yeah, that, it, it was hard to get it. There was a number of times where I'm like, "Hey, I'd really like your point of view," and people didn't want to share. Yeah. There's a scene in the airport where this lady says, "You don't, you know, you don't know, you don't even know me. Mm-hmm. Like you're talking about me and you don't know me." And I tried to get her to go on camera, and she wouldn't. Mm. Um, and so it was really hard to get the other points of views. But it also was not really the goal of the film. For me, the goal of the film was to tell the character stories, yeah. not to kind of give a give a broad a both sides account yeah. of the 
of it's not really about um what happened to michael brown and about you know this view you know conservative versus liberal or anything like that it's Mm -hmm. about how young people can engage in democracy and some do it in protest and some do it in policy Um, yeah and i thought that that's i mean the the framing of it with these all these people who were a part of this scholarship program was really smart because you you got a, a kind of a a wide range of different takes on these issues and and how people go about you know fighting for justice so i thought that was that was great yeah and i think that's what's kind of separated it there's a few, you know a number of other films that have come out around this time of, of uh, in response to the Ferguson uprising and there's one called who streets that played at Sundance. And, and that's really focused on the protesters and even Brittany who's in our film is in that film as well. Mm. And uh, you know, that film was picked up by Magnolia and was in theaters, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it was all about the protest. And then there's other films about like what really happened that day with Michael Brown. And yeah. um, there's a number of different films. There's no film that says like, okay, well, how did this affect young people in St. Louis and what did they go out and do because of it? What kind of change was created? And we're seeing now the, uh, it's a wider demographic of people running for office and getting involved in not just protests, but also policy side. And I think I, I feel excited that the film seems kind of prophetic of that, of what I see increase in my city. And I think even nationally of younger, uh, more diverse leaders saying, I want to get involved in politics. I want to run. I want to, I want to, learn this and make an impact here. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been kind of a cool wave. Um, and I think the film kind of touches on that a little bit. The, the phrase that um, I just kept thinking about throughout the film and afterwards was during their protests, they say um, white silence is black violence. And I wondered if you would, expound on that or what you think that means because my biggest struggle with with all this is is knowing what my responsibility is as a privileged white person like to to listen and to understand um is all i feel like i can do but when when i hear things like that like there's a responsibility to speak out in some way but what what does that mean really yeah, and I think it's white silence is violence, um, is what what I heard them saying. Okay, and so what I took from that is that if you just, you know, there's a lot of quotes even in scripture. You know, it talks about you know be hot or cold, but don't be lukewarm. Mm-hmm. And um, this idea that you know if, if we remain silent about injustice, like injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. I think is is close to an MLK quote, but it's this idea that if if you don't start speaking up about, and in their case, particularly, it's talking about police brutality against people of color. Like if if you don't say anything, then everything will stay as is, and that will lead to that just leads to violence to us. You know, that's mm-hmm. that doesn't that leads to our situation not changing. That's that's kind of my interpretation of it. Um, and what we should do is is white people i think is is i would i'm not an expert on it by any means but i think it's you know using your privilege for good is uh, being in situations where you kind of let go of that privilege to serve in uh to be a servant to like leaders who don't who are diverse leaders who don't have haven't had that opportunity in the past or 
um, like putting you in a place of like learning from um, black leaders, from leaders of color. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's really talked about because uh, there's a guy, Starsky Wilson, there was a Ferguson commission created after uh, the Ferguson uprising. And he was the co-chair with another guy from a large corporation. And uh, he says, you know, social inversion, like putting yourself in situations where you're no longer the majority and no longer even potentially that the privileged person or the leader mm-hmm. and learn like being in leadership. And I think that really helps you as a, as a white male as well to has helped me see things from a different angle has helped me to uh, appreciate um, different people's experiences and to, yeah. So I, I think that's kind of what it's saying, but it's also saying like, all right, like do something about this, like care, care about us. I feel like the biggest thing that I took from the film is that people don't know what you, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in a lot of ways, culturally white people kind of stay silent and, and, you know, stereotypically, I know in our churches, they call us the frozen chosen, like in a Presbyterian uh, history that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, let me just look at that and think about it and ponder it for a while. Yeah. Wow. To, to a lot of people that may seem like, oh, you don't care when you're like, well, no, I'm just thinking. It's like, well, if you don't like voice, like, yes, I care about black lives. Yes, black lives do matter. Mm-hmm. And kind of be out and vocal about it, it. That silence feels like you don't care. Mm-hmm. And by not caring, you're letting uh, injustice continue. You're letting violence continue towards us. Um, you're, you're letting injustice, uh, inequity, all these things continue because you're silent. Mm. You just picked up a camera and started doing this, not really knowing where it would lead. Um, but at some point you had to have some kind of financial backing for this project, right? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So how did you, how did you put the, where did that money come from and how did you get it, get it going? Yeah. So, I mean, all the initial stuff was just kind of done, you know, with my own equipment that I owned and on my own time. Um, the foundation gave me like three grand basically mm. after I've been working so much, she's like, well, well, here's some money. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. uh, I know you've been working a lot and, and it wasn't their film. They knew it was my film, but it was just a way she had some discretionary funding. And, um, it was just like here, th- we know that th- here you go <laughs> basically. And at some point, you know, we wrote a bunch of grants and didn't get, get much. And I remember sitting down with the uh, faith who's in the film was the executive director. She's like, we probably should stop making this movie because I know you're not going to get paid. And I, me and uh, my business partner, Kyle, we actually laugh like, yeah, we're too far into this to stop now. Mm-hmm. Like we've, we've made films for nothing before. And we'll like, we're actually, we've actually been given a lot of money here because we got the foundation got about 10 grand in grants from a state um, humanities organization. So we wrote a nom, uh, grant about like how it was going to talk, talk about the humanities and we're going to have humanities experts in the film. And so we ended up getting two grants there. And then we got another grant from uh, another like foundation in St. Louis that we kind of pitched to. And so there was in all, I got about 18 grand in funding Okay. Um, to, to make it initially. And but, so you're, you're having to work throughout 2014 and 2015 on, other things that are paying the bills. And when you can, you're jumping in and shooting these things. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm balancing my client work with that. And, um, so in, in that 18 grand all went to pay other people. Mm. 
So it, it, what it did is it provided me the ability to, you know, get a little bit of system editing and, pl- you know, color correction, uh, pay a composer, all the, you know, basically everything else, motion graphics, everything else besides my, my time. And so I didn't end up owing anybody any money when the movie was done. I was able to pay everybody because even, even on that budget, people, I had to ask for favors, you know, yeah. everybody was doing it, doing their work cheaper. And then we also, what's, what's interesting about the, in the same time I was working on this film, we started a nonprofit called Continuity. And the mission is to expand diversity in media production and through skills-based training, mentorship, and opportunities for untapped talent. Hmm. We found that in St. Louis, less than 2% of the folks in the commercial video industry were African-American. And so it was, you know... The city of St. Louis is 48% African-American and the metro area is 18%. So very underrepresented in that industry. And so we had a uh, started a training program for minorities basically to get in the film industry. And so we got two grants to run a program where uh, it was an editing program where they worked on scenes for Show Me Democracy and a marketing and distribution program where they they helped build the logo, t-shirts, do grassroots marketing for the film. And so... That's awesome. Yeah, I was able to get uh, two grants for that program. I got a, a co-teacher, and so we taught scenes. So the Black Brunch scene was initially edited by a guy who never edited a scene before in his life. Wow. And um, he did the original rough cut, which isn't honestly that far from the final cut. Mm. You know, um, and so it was cool working with him and seeing him learn how to edit and that kind of thing. And uh, it ended up winning... We, we turned into a short before the finish was, the film was finished mm-hmm. and it won like it got honorable mention for best local short at the St. Louis International Film Festival. That's great. Yeah. And his guy's guy's first video. Mm. So how was it, it, it? You released the film in 2017 initially, right? Right. Well, we did a rough cut screening at the St. Louis International Film Festival in 2016, okay. which was really the premiere because like 300 people came out. Um, but then the film, we did some community screenings after that, but the, the really the premiere was when Fuse TV showed it, April 29th of 2017. Okay. And how, and how did they saw it at the film festival? And Well, what was crazy was I went to Sundance trying to like pitch the film mm-hmm. and get like uh, distributors and that kind of thing. And while I'm there, I got this random LinkedIn message that I almost thought was fake from some guy I never heard of. And he's like, hey, I'm we're interested in your film. I'm working with this other organization. I'm like, okay, this is probably just like, you know, another one of those distribution things that'll never work out. And it's not really like a legit company. Mm-hmm. But uh, while at Sundance, I talked to this guy and he's like, yeah, there's this cable station views and they heard about your film. And I didn't find out how they heard about it until much later. They actually just saw it in the um, program guide for the St. Louis International Film Festival. Okay. So that was how them and our educational distributor, the video project found the film was just being in the San Luis International Film Festival, which is not like, it's not a top tier festival. It's a good regional festival. And, um, but I, I was really interested, like film festivals still matter that people look through their, the, the curated films of these festivals find yeah. if they're looking for specific content. So that was, um, cause I, I've been a little bit skeptical of festivals over the years just because, of various experiences, but that made me realize still the importance of them, you know? Yeah. It, it can seem sometimes like they are kind of just a cash grab, you know, get, get money from artists and put up a couple of (laughs) sheets to throw up, you know, do some screenings for 10 people and move on, you know? 
Exactly. Like what I found was that with festivals, a lot of times you were paying to go there, paying to stay there, and maybe some people would show up to your film. Yeah. But we we've done a lot of educational or community screenings where that school or you know community pays for you to come there, pays for you to show the film, pays for you to speak. And they work at bringing an audience there. And so I was like, I, I've put a lot of my effort more into community screenings and educational screenings than yeah. festivals. Nice. Um, well, let's let's go back and get some history on, on you. Um, so we met at Biola. And yeah. you were studying film there. I was studying film there. Um, what was your... What was your first... Like while you were at Biola, did you have a particular interest in documentary filmmaking? Well, I remember I'd always gone to public school all my life and I went to community college and then I was like, I'm going to go to film school for my last two years. And so I started researching. I was like, you know, I've never been to a Christian school. I wonder what the best Christian film school is. And so I typed that in in Google, Christian film school and Biola pops up. Mm -hmm. And, And I just start watching all these videos. I see like Matt Jones, be the man. And (laughs) um all these all these other films probably some of the films you worked on Uh um which you probably worked on be the man didn't you didn't you edit that yeah i did yeah so i'm seeing your like work you're you're working on because i'm a like a junior whatever around this time and um i'm like wow this place looks great and i went out to la and or california and visited like three uc schools university of california schools and biola and i just really loved biola like the students were the most friendly and i liked uh i like the idea that my faith could be incorporated in the film Mm -hmm. and i saw they had this guerrilla film society and i thought that was about like filmmakers who go into the jungle and tell (laughs) stories about like (laughs) like war and like i'm like sweet guerrilla film society like i'll meet other people that are wanting to do documentaries in like other countries and hide out in jungles and film crazy stuff and um that was not what the guerrilla film society was it was you know uh I realized quickly of like 200 film students that they're like, Oh, he's the documentary Africa guy. Cause that, cause that's kind of how I kind of came in was uh-huh. I had a short about um, my time in Africa and I planned to, my first documentary was about um, extreme poverty in Africa. And so I realized quick, pretty quickly that, Oh, most people want to make Lord of the Rings or star Wars or something along those lines, mm-hmm. not so much shoot documentaries about social justice issues. So I, I think I kind of doubted myself before that, you know, I was like, who am I to go make some film about poverty in Africa? Some like white dude from Missouri, you know? But then as I went to this great film school with the guerrilla film society, and I was like the guy that I felt like people said, Oh, that's that documentary guy that's interested in that. I was like, well, maybe, maybe I am supposed to make this film. Maybe um, if I come all the way out here to film school and I still don't find anybody that has that same passion, maybe I'm actually meant to do this, you know? Mm. So, so at Biola, you kind of, um, felt like that kind of gave you some clout to move forward with that, that first feature. It it did make me feel like, um, if, if this is in my heart and that this isn't like something like everybody wants to do, maybe I should, maybe I should do it. It was, it was definitely like one of the dominoes that kind of fell to get that thing started. Um, also, while you're at Biola, you become friends with some guys that are going out to Michigan to make a Lord of the Rings style film. And, yes. and you shoot behind the scenes footage of that. Um, 
as that production falls apart and what was meant to be behind the scenes for the eventual film becomes a documentary about a film going wrong. And you came back and you, you put together like a, a, a shortcut of it and showed it to the guerrilla film society. And I remember seeing it being blown away. I was like, if there is more of this, this should be a feature. And, uh, we got together. You told me, you showed me the footage or you told me what you had. And, then I spent the next year putting together a cut of a feature version of it, which was never released, unfortunately, um, but seems to uh, have quite a few fans out there who have seen it. It's it's gotten around, you know, there, there were a couple of copies of it um, that I would pass around to people who were just really interested in seeing it, who had heard about it. And so it's now it's become this kind of underground thing that people talk about still. Um, and then hilarious. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> crazy. But I, I wish, I wish people could see it. And and you know, we've we've tried, we've tried to make it happen. But um, yeah, do you want to do you want to talk about that experience at all? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I went to Biola, and I was only there a year and a half because I was so much money, and so I just like took as many hours as I could, and all these summer school classes and Jan term classes because I was trying to like pay it off real quick because it's the same price if you take twelve hours versus eighteen hours. Um, and my, my roommate, the first semester was this guy who didn't really like leave his room that much. I think he skipped class all the time and like just watched TV, but he showed me, he showed me his like first film. And I was like, that he made the summer before I was like, dang, this is like pretty good, dude. And he's like, yeah, I'm making a feature this summer and I'm going back to Michigan. I'm like, you're going to make a feature film. And that's kind of unheard of, right. In film school. Yeah. And I was like, well, you know, I see him, I kept on seeing him work on, it. I'm like, well, how can I help out? He's like, well, what can you do? I'm like, well, I'm not really great at like any one thing, but I can kind of shoot and edit just fine. So we'll do the behind the scenes. I'm like, all right, I can do that. But then um, things started unfolding where he's like, oh yeah, I took out $50,000 in educational loans. I'm like, you did what? And um, I was like, this is interesting. <laughs> so I started like filming like the, the, still the idea before they ever left. And I filmed uh, with our friend Peter, who was like the, he ended up winning, um, I think our year, the top student in our program. And he was the DP on be the man that you worked on that won a DJ award. And so yeah. he was kind of like one of the top guys. Um, and I started talking to him and I, I remember him emailing me saying like, he's like, I think this is going to be just like a horrible failed experiment. And I'm like, Oh geez. <laughs> <laughs> and so the whole time in my head, I'm like, I'm not just making a BTS. I'm like, I had seen, I think I had seen Lost of La Mancha before that. And uh -huh. I heard of American movie, which are these films about the making of films that fall apart. Yeah. And so I started, I started filming this whole thing and it was, I mean, it's, it's a wild story where he, uh, there's a mutiny on set and he like has, he, you know, all these dreams of what he's going to pull off and none of it's possible. And, uh, everybody's just like, you know, not slept and eating nothing but pizza. And there's these huge like production meetings where everybody's fighting and it's, you know, and it was really intense, like being in it. And, um, and then the guy gets, well, I don't want to give it away, but nobody's <laughs> going to see it. So he gets, he, gets, he gets kidney stones like while filming. So I go from like behind the scenes to then producer. But then I'm like, by the end, I'm producing and directing this film. And I've handed off the camera behind the scenes. And uh, he's in the hospital with kidney stones. And like the whole, like half the crew's left. Nobody's like taking it seriously anymore. And, um, and all his money got spent. Yeah. And then... 
you know, you, it was, you know, I turned it into a short, you turned it into a feature and, but he, uh, when we, when we approached him, he said he'd sue us if we released it. Yeah. Um, which was so, really unfortunate because you, you, the only ahead. time in my life that I've been called a bully by someone simply because I just, I kept asking, you know, I was like, I was kept mm-hmm. just trying to get in contact and convince him that this was a worthwhile thing to put out there. But, yeah. But, well, so the, the the film that they were making was called The Ice Shield of Alathea. That was also the title of the the doc. Maybe maybe someday it'll it'll get out there. Yeah, I think the real I think the film is like to me it would always had to be also taking your film and including scenes from what we actually shot yeah. as well as like modern day interviews and like we'd have to interview Steven For and sure. then it's like especially then it's the film. Yeah, and now like, you know, it's been some time it would be super interesting to hear from him now talking back on that experience i would i would love to see that and we could we could interview all the people that are in the footage because we're still friends with pretty much everybody yeah. you know like um and see where they've gone like kind of like the sandlot <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> like who who ended well, up with wendy pepper i don't know if you do you talk to steve at all no um, no i haven't talked i haven't talked to him in years well over the christmas um there's another person, friends with Peter, who saw Ice Shield and, you know, is inspired. And he actually got a hold of Steven and met with him in person because he's from Michigan. <laughs> yeah. And so when he went back for Christmas, he met with him. And I, I never got a sit down with him. We were always just talking on the phone. So I haven't heard how that went. I mean, I, I assume that they would have told me if Steve had agreed to make you know, finish the film, but, um, there's a little progress, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's fun. And I mean, I think the films that are like, that have that kind of longevity, you know, the, that time frame brings growth and new ideas. Like, I wonder, I wonder what, how that impacted people. Cause I know it impacted all of us and what it, what it did for me personally was at that point, I had shown up and all these people had been in school together for a few years and they were shooting all these films and I was this new guy and I was interested in documentary and I didn't really like, I didn't have really confidence yet. I'd say I was, I really lacked confidence because it seemed like everybody at the school was already playing on another level. But that, that film, what it did for me is it made me kind of believe in myself because for a few days I had to like take over this big crew and all this, um, and I, I just had to step up and lead. And I felt like I did pretty well. Like there was one day I worked a 22 hour day and, um, I, I just remember like having, um, porta potties dropped off and like all these things. And there was catapults going and, it, you know, people, it, it was all like a fire whip. Yeah. And I was like, I'm in charge right now. Everybody's asking my opinion on what to do. Yeah. Um, and I was like, I can do this. And I really came out of that. I think after that, and after making that short doc, I was like, you know what? I can I can direct. I can produce. And it really was a boost of confidence. But I don't know if I would have got there if I wouldn't have been thrown into it. So would you say that your... Um, your preference for documentary filmmaking comes out of the types of subject matter and the the things that you want to 
you know, getting into social justice issues and making things along those lines leads you to do it in that style? Or are there other things about documentary filmmaking that appeal to you? That's a great question. Um, For me, I never thought about making documentaries. Uh, I always wanted to make Forrest Gump. Like that was my film, you know, that that, that is my film. That was that Forrest Gump is what I always, you know, it's not a popular movie to say is your favorite movie, but it's the only one that comes to mind if I have to choose one, because it's like so many different movies all in one. So usually that's that's what I'll say, but that's fine. That's like, that's like some of my questions on like getting into my bank account. <laughs> What's your favorite movie? I mean, like on everything, like so people hopefully not trying to break into my bank account, but um, you know, I love Forrest Gump. I, it's just so complex. So I love it. And that's the kind of movie I always want to make. And I still dream to make like, that's my eventual goal. Like my three goals in life were to fall in love hear like daddy, um, like from a kid mm-hmm. and make a feature film, like a fiction film. Mm-hmm. So I got two out of three. Um, but that that's really my my goal and i want to make stuff that's like this not christian movies but faith flows through it so naturally and realistically that mm-hmm. um that it's still of a, a like christ like the christian beliefs and my my faith is is in it in a raw way yeah um and which i'm i'm guessing is what a lot of us wanted to do out of biola and so that's still my goal but yeah i saw this film called invisible children um, before I went out to Biola and it was just three dudes that went to Africa and made this film and it was going, millions of people were seeing it around the country and it was causing real change, um, in our culture and our generation saying like, Oh, we can make an impact. You know, they were, they organized the largest demonstration for Africa in U S history. They, uh, helped do so many huge things, build so many schools in Uganda through this film and movement that, I think what I saw was like, wow, they're making an impact through film Mm -hmm. and that this is probably the easiest way for me to direct. That was really kind of my, my reason for documentary was like, I can jump from, you know, a PA to a director in documentary because it takes so much less. And I already have the skills to shoot and edit that I don't need to depend on production design and have a big budget and actors and actresses and all these things. And then I'll, I'll hopefully make the, the transition over. Um, which hasn't happened. I mean, I've now made four feature docs, but it's been out of each of them's like kind of happened simultaneously as the other, I'm still finishing up the other one. So Mm. it's like, I I feel like I've fallen into every single one of these documentaries. (laughs) It's kind of crazy how they've just like become part of my life and my path, but let's let's run down the list. So what what was the first one that you made out of school? Well, I guess iShield is the first one I made, um, mm-hmm. like as a producer, you know, as a, you shot, you directed it and edited it, mm-hmm. um, but as a, a shot and produced it. So that was really the first one and never got released. Yeah. But then while you were kind of finishing that up, I started a film that was originally called Give a Damn. And that was about me and two of my friends trying to live in extreme poverty on a dollar twenty-five a day across 15 different countries. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, two of us were Christians and our one friend was an atheist and we were trying to get him to give a damn about poverty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we eventually changed the film to what matters because of, uh, a couple different reasons, but it's, uh, yeah, I think it's my most known project so far, you know, show me democracy is pretty well known as, as well, but it's a lot newer, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, we, a lot of crazy stuff happened in that. Yeah. You um, gotta, you gotta talk about the plane crash. 
a little bit. Yeah. So we had, we had hitchhiked across the U.S. Uh, we, we didn't count the $1.25 a day for like transportation between continents. So we hitchhiked across the U.S., backpacked across Europe, and finally made it to Africa. And the whole idea was to try to live in extreme poverty in each of these places. And the place that had inspired me to make this film is called the Kabera Slum, which is the second largest slum in, at the time in Africa. And about a million people live within two and a half square miles. And so I went there before going to Biola, and I decided I wanted to bring my friend Rob back there to see this in person, to see the need uh, of, of like the, ex- the extremity of need there. And, and hopefully that would impact him to want to do something about it. Mm. And so we spent a day in the slum. And then the next day we got uh, like a missionary organization to fly us over the slum to get aerial footage. And this is before drones were, you know, accessible to the average person. This is in 2009. And we don't know what happened, but the pilot, um, the plane got too low and the, the, it, it wasn't able to, to, to get back in the air. Mm. And, um, you still, do, you still know don't us, know what happened, like why he was. Well, I received a report from like an organization that said that, that basically the, um, ga- the, the gasoline or whatever in it was low. And so mm. when the airplane tipped, it threw off the sensor of the gas and told it that it didn't have any gas. Uh. And so then it shut off the engine. But then by the time they tried to, restart the engine uh that it, it had gotten too low and it couldn't get back up at that point wow is is the way i understood it okay. um and you know the plane hit uh power lines i didn't realize anything was wrong until i was like wow we were really low and then i saw two power lines come into view um there was no warning or anything and two seconds later we were it, it just felt like um f- uh, you were getting tackled from every side or you in like a roller coaster that had gone off the tracks and like was banging up against walls. And it was, uh, yeah, very intense. It hit a building, landed upside down. Um, the pilot died on impact. My friend Rob got out of the plane, um, and then came back and told me, you know, the plane's on fire, the plane's on fire. You got to get out. You got to get out. And I just saw, I turned around and saw flames coming in my direction. And so he helped me out of the plane and I had fractured my L3 vertebrae, damaged my intestines. Um, a lot of different things. I didn't, I didn't realize at the moment I just knew I was in pain. And then he went in to try to rescue the co-pilot and was, um, you know, he, he was on fire and Rob was trying to get his seatbelt off and then he was unable to, and was pulled away. And then both him and I were pulled into a vehicle. Um, and, and then other, uh, Kenyans nearby tried to rescue the co-pilot, uh, who they got out, but he died a week later from burns. And, um, but me and Rob both lived and, um, Rob suffered with the post-traumatic stress of trying to rescue that pilot. I mean, to this day. Yeah. And, um, I suffered, uh, by damaging my, my physical body was how I ended up being hurt the most. And I still have problems to this day. I had to have some of my intestines removed and, um, yeah, the film kind of follows our journey afterwards as Rob and I go back to America and our third friend David stays in Africa and continues the journey. And so it shows each of us kind of living in a different kind of poverty, like Rob in almost a mental poverty from the PTSD, me in a physical poverty. I lost 45 pounds because the doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with me for like 10 months. And um, then our friend David continued the journey through Africa. And we dedicated the film to the uh, to the missionary pilots who both had four kids um, each. and it. Uh, yeah, I definitely sent ripples of through the missionary community and um yeah, it's definitely uh 
one of the most traumatic things to ever happen to me for sure. That's crazy. And so the film, you know, tells that story kind of halfway through and then follows our journey for the rest of it. Mm -hmm. And then I guess that led right away into the next one, which was about David and what he was doing. Right. Right. And so then, um, it was, you know, all these things happened over a period of time. So like the idea for what matters started in 07, we shot it in 09. I was sick for 2010. We finished it and premiered it in 2011 and toured it up until even last in 2017. And so these films have kind of span, it was almost like a 10 year span wow. from the time of the idea to the actual still screening it to, to places. And so during that, uh, kind of 2012, 2013, I actually started another film, um, in 2012, I don't know how much time we got, but oh, yeah. um, I, I, the story came out about what matters, and um, which is now on Amazon, by the way. It's on Prime, so if anybody wants to see, all you got to do is type in what matters documentary on Amazon Prime, and you can see it. But um, the story started to get out into the news, and two local women um, approached me saying, hey, we want to do this documentary about this former hitman that now rescues girls from sex trafficking in Nicaragua. Oh, and I'm wow. like, sweet. This is how it's supposed to happen. You like make a movie on your own dime with your friends and barely pull it off. But then like people who have connections to money and opportunities come and approach you and hire you a director as you as a director, mm-hmm. right? So everything seems to like this is perfect. And I knew they had some, you know, connections and their own businesses and things. We started doing fundraisers and, and raised more money than I had raised, you know, raised about as much money as I raised for my entire film, just like before we even shot anything mm. um on this one. And so I went to Nicaragua, spent a week down there told this story, shot some great stuff, come back. But what ended up happening was Univision found out about our film, which Univision is, you know, one of the, I think the largest like Spanish speaking channel in the world uh, probably. Yeah. And they have a show called a Kia which means uh, here and now. And it's kind of like their 60 minutes, I think or dateline or something. And so they, they found out about the film and started doing a story on it. And they found out that the guy had made up his backstory and Photoshopped himself in some of his pictures no way. Uh, from the past military. Yeah. And so they, they, they look at this, they find the original and then find him photoshopped into it. Oh my god. And I had, I had seen this photo and I kind of freaked out on the trip, but you know, when you're shooting, you don't get much sleep. And I'm like, I don't know. That looked really weird. They're like, no, they probably just have really bad photo retouching in Nicaragua <laughs> oh and that kind of goodness. thing. And I was like, I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. That's, that's crazy to think he would Photoshop himself into a picture. <laughs> um, but he had Photoshopped himself into the wrong military. Like oh. there was these Contras and these Sandinistas and he had, he was, I think he was a Sandinista and had Photoshopped them to the Contra photos. And it was like, um, so we found that out and they, they, they confronted him on camera and this played on like across Latin America. Right. Like we still have people like this film never got finished. We still have people commenting on Facebook. Like he's a liar. Like we know that's why we stopped the movie like five years ago. Wow. Um, but we don't know, we don't really know the truth still. So he got put in jail for, um, they said abusing one of the girls in the home he rescued, which that seemed fishy. Mm. Like, and everything seemed fishy. And when we found out he had lied, I finally, I was like, I remember my friend saying, he's like, you're more excited about this film now than you ever were. So like, well, now we got a story. Let's go down there. Cause before it's just like, look at this good guy and this good stuff he's doing. Yeah. We're telling a, pic- a story about where, where his life had been. Now we had like some drama and some complexity and some real, like in the moment, uh, thriller or you know um mystery but uh it ended up like losing its steam and the producers kind of just moved on with their lives and we i don't even know if what happened to uh, his name was oscar i don't know what happened to him i don't know what really was the truth 
obviously the truth was that he's Photoshop, but why did he Photoshop? And what, you know, he definitely was helping young girls and women out of prostitution. I saw that. So I don't know. It's like some, there's something fishy about the whole situation. And that film has just like, I still have the footage on a hard drive, but it's, it's, it's somebody else's film. And I don't, we've never went back down there. And so that was like, that was my first three films. Two of them didn't get finished. Hmm. It was pretty uh, discouraging. Yeah. That's crazy. I, you, I think you need to keep, keep poking at that one. So you never, you never got to talk to him again after. Nope. Wow. Yeah. You can look it up. Uh, there's a, I think the website's still up. It's called hitman That was the name of the mil- film hitman to hero. And um, you can see a tra- the trailer for it. And the trailer now has the scene from Univision, and, like everybody's response. Mm. And then, like this idea that we're going to go back down, but we never did. Man. So then what, what was the next one to, to get going? So, so the next one, um, so my business partner, uh, Kyle was like, you know, what happened after what matters was that David ended up going, doing his own thing and, and starting a nonprofit in Africa. And he had this incredible story where he had went to this, cause when we were doing research about poverty for our, what matters documentary, he found that the country of Malawi was like the poorest country in the world, but he also read that it's one of the friendliest countries in the world. And that kind of always stuck with him. Like, wow, it's the poorest, but one of the most friendliest. And um, he had a, he knew he had a heart for human trafficking. He had done a 21 day fast while we were working on what matters, um, like during the pre-production stage. Mm-hmm. And after not eating any food for 21 days, he stayed up all night and prayed and said, God told him that like his mission in life was to end, uh, like help girls who've been trafficked and, and um, taken advantage of sexually and then help mentor men who have addiction to, um, pornography and, and, and with, with purity and that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. so we were watching him in real time, start this nonprofit as like a 23 year old guy and go to Malawi and realize that Malawi needs a safe home for girls. And it tells this crazy story. Cause he, he goes to this country, emails all these people, nobody responds except for this one lady. And she's like, I can meet you, but only right after you land from like a 15 hour flight. So they drive straight to her office and he says, okay, I know I've never been to this country. And I know I don't know much about it, but I have this vision from God to start a safe home for girls. And he said, the lady's jaw hits the ground. He said, she said, for the last 15 years, I've been praying for that exact thing. Wow. And I know, I know the city it needs to be built in. And so now all these years later, they have the only safe home in the entire country. It's helped like 70 girls go through the program. Mm. They're, they continue to grow. And so the film tells the story of, of him having this idea for this, this vision for this organization. And then like, it tells the whole story. Like I got to go to Malawi and, and show kind of the, the story. And, but what's interesting about the film that I think made it special was that he was simultaneously dealing with his own like sexual purity. Basically he mm. had you know, been addicted to pornography growing up. He had like led on all these girls. And so we try to, we try to combine this like global story about human trafficking with each of our personal story of purity, which I feel like is so relevant and like, you know, all the stuff you see coming out about the Catholic church and now the Baptist church is just like, like if we want to tackle these like global issues, like we also have to look into our own selves and yeah. like what's going on in our own hearts. And so that's what the film's about. And that's actually my wife's favorite film that I've made mm. um, of, of, of all of them. She loves that one the most. Um, and it's the most uh, faith. It, it has the most uh, specific faith-based kind of film. It, it actually got distributed by Vision Video, which your, one of your films did, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sing over me was Vision Video. Yeah, so we uh, we're we're working with Vision Video and um, with that one. Cool. 
Yeah. And I appreciate all your kind of, I remember we talked about it initially and you gave me some good, good advice and information and stuff about Christian distribution and that kind of thing. And I, I need to get advice from you on these community screenings. Cause we, we tried to do some, you know, we did some church screenings with sing over me, but I think we could have done so much more than we did. We, I mean, we had trouble with the subject matter of that film, getting even churches to want to show it, but yeah. Even beyond that, though, I, I just feel like we didn't really push it as as well or as hard as we could have. Yeah, you're, that film is so... I mean, it's one of those films that sits in this middle zone that like nobody wants to touch, probably. Yeah. Because um, uh, either it's not progressive enough or it's too progressive. It's like in this middle ground, which I really believe is is where it should be. Mm. Um, but it's it's, man, it's such a vulnerable place to be i feel like it's it's kind of i hear lecrae talking about being an outsider and tim keller talking about like christians don't really fit into any party you know mm-hmm. and like operating in this um the complexity of yes we are like totally lacking in, in addressing this issue but also doesn't mean that the historic position should entirely change you mm-hmm. know yeah um just because the culture is uh saying it should and just because it's, it is hard it's like while sitting in that middle place it's like it's not worth anybody kind of making that stand, but I think, you know, you could go about it two ways. You could just try to stir up a controversy. Like a lot of people, like the Trump styles, just like piss people off. So they have to pay attention mm-hmm. and they pay attention because they want to be angry at it. But I'm sure you probably didn't want to, <laughs> it isn't really like that kind of film where you want to like drive that kind of attention, yeah. like the, the fire festival type documentary. Like, can you believe how ridiculous this is? Everybody watch it because of that. Right. Yeah. You, you want them to watch it for, for, uh, talking about like healing and, and growth and moving forward. And so I think it's, and what, what, what was hard for you guys is some of these organizations that used to do that work are no longer around like Exodus. And um, so well, some of the networks that have been previously created, it had almost dissolved like around that time. Right. Yeah. Well, and the film itself like does not promote, uh, you know, it, there are d- different, a lot of those organizations are like illegal now, but some of them are illegal for the right reasons. And some of them are illegal for the wrong reasons, you know? Yeah. So yeah. it's hard to like tell, you know, who is a legit thing that you want to be associated with and who isn't, but yeah. Yeah. Um. Well, yeah. And it's that, that middle place is, it's interesting. Cause that's, you know, in filmmaking in general, too, I feel like a lot of the ideas that I have for narrative films and what I want to do, it, they're always kind of in that place where I'm, you know, they're going to be too, too much for Christian audiences and they're going to be too tame for secular audiences. And like, I don't really feel like anyone has has done it yet. Exactly what I want to do has really made films that that work in that space. There's been some that are, you know, close and kind of, but yeah. it's a tough, it's a tough place to be trying to make entertainment in. It it really is. And that's, that's why I love um, this podcast so much. Uh, I think I was like your first person to comment on it <laughs> yeah, and like it on iTunes or something. But I just think it's, it's a niche thing, but there are the people who, who like the content you're creating are going to really like it. Like every interview you've done, like I've just listened to every word and I loved it. Cause it was so, 
is such specific to the niche that I, I want to fulfill with my mm. career. And I feel like me and you are, are really are similar in so many ways and our, yeah. our passions and our, our goals and, and stuff like that. Um, and so I've just really, uh, been encouraged by your, you know, your, your work from afar. Um, Thanks, man. or me, not from afar, but I guess from somewhat close, um, at least far from a distance physically. Um, but yeah, I think, um, I think we want to operate in that same space and, uh, but I think it's a tough space, but I think Lecrae is a great example of someone who's navigated that space and has just done huge, you know yeah. what I mean? And, and really had a, really had a wide audience. And I think, um, there's not a ton of those in film. I mean, I know those, um, those guys who did the, I can only imagine and Woodlawn and stuff like that. Like, the the Irwin brothers like mm. I feel like they're navigating it but I, in a lot of ways I feel like documentary is one of the best ways to navigate it because it's almost like God is telling the story yeah you know you you can plan out so much but then he lets the rest of the um what what really happens is is his story and he's telling it and I think that there's uh it's real and so there's a real way to be honest it's just uh and I think people's interest in documentary is growing, but I don't think the Christian, the Christ, the filmmakers who are believers, have really tapped into the full potential that documentary filmmaking could could be. Could be, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's a good point. Well, I think you're doing great work, man. I'm excited to see every every new thing that you're coming up with. So keep it up. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. Really, same same to you. Thank you very much. And thanks for, thanks for doing this. It was good to talk to you. Yeah. Good to talk to you too. I was, there's one other film I didn't mention if I have a, a second oh, to yeah, mention it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so Rob, who I talked about, who was in the plane crash, um, we ended up doing a film about how he dealt with his PTSD and it follows him as he starts this like nerf gun battle arena in his backyard oh, and yeah. starts like have people over to play nerf. And it's a film about, mental illness and in the importance of community and um when in dealing with ptsd and it's it's really like it's a hard film to explain you know mm-hmm. but it actually turned out really well and so i was able to produce that and and dp that and uh that's on amazon as well it's called thunderdome and it's a documentary and then cool. um i think that yeah, show me democracies on amazon as well i think that's the only one of your films i haven't seen so i'll have to i'll have to check it out oh cool yeah i didn't even i didn't know you had seen when the saints yeah yeah Okay, great. Yeah, I, actually, I went to out. a screening of When the Saints in L.A. when you you played at a Regal, I think, through Tug. Oh, cool. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, we end up uh, updating it, and so we made some updates. Not nothing like super significant, but I think we made it stronger and, and a little better um, before we end up having it distributed by Vision Video. If you'd like to keep up with Dan and the exciting work he is doing. Uh, go to speakupproductions.com and go on Amazon and watch Show Me Democracy. Tell me what you thought. Thanks for listening. Please do me a favor and give the podcast a review on iTunes. If you have some time. Um, follow at Salty Cinema on Twitter and all the other socials. We will see you next time on Salty Cinema. Salty Cinema.